Thank you for tuning into the weekly sermon from Journey of Hope, a United Methodist community. We are a welcoming community that fosters belonging and acceptance. Through ministries, we enable individuals to transform their lives as they learn to follow Jesus Christ. We follow the guidance of the Spirit in sharing our faith through missional adventures, building relationships, and offering our witness to our community and world. We serve the Elgin, Illinois area and are located at the corner of Randall Road and Highland. To learn more about us, you can check us out at johumc.org or any of our social media platforms by searching Journey of Hope. And now, here is this week's message. There are two readings this morning. Both come from the writings of Paul. The first is from his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equally with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians, verses 15 through 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things held together. And I apologize, there's a third reading. This comes from the Gospel of John. 1 John, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The world became flesh 
the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless the reading, hearing, and understanding of his word. Amen. Thank you, Gary. You may be seated. I'm going to ask that you pray with me again. Will you pray with me? Gracious and almighty God, God, we come before you striving to hear your word, trying to understand this, this wonderful scripture, wonderful words for us. And so God, I ask that you, would, that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds and allow us to truly fall in love once again with your word and to understand what you are speaking to us today. All this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's week two of our worship series, We Believe. This time that I am just so happy to be able to share with you some of the core beliefs in the Christian faith and how the United Methodist Church also views them. During this series, we look at six different themes of how, and how the great tradition of the church has tackled some of these themes, as well as our founder, John Wesley. Now, I'm going to encourage you, as I always do, to have your bulletins handy, because in your bulletins, you're going to find places to take notes, and I encourage you to jot those notes down so that when the Spirit speaks to you this morning, you can remember those later. All right, we began last week in the message time by reciting the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is in your bulletin. It will be on the screen. Uh, so for all of you that are worshiping at home with us, you can, can join in with us in this creed. And so I'm going to ask that you read this with me again. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Yeah. So last week, you remember we talked about one God. One God, three parts, but one God. We came up with many different names that we would describe God, how we would describe God to other people. Uh, and so I wonder if you reflected on some of those names this past week, if you sat in your 15 minutes of alone time with God and really thought about what those words mean to you. What does that description of God mean to you? So in the past, I would lead uh, a youth group 
on mission trips, mainly to, uh, we were, at that time we were leading them to uh, Camp Courageous in Iowa to work on so many things that needed repair and installation of installations for these important campers. Well, during these trips, they would get to know each other really well, sometimes a little too well. But you see, getting to know themselves was part of the purpose. It was part of the design. And one way we would do this, because a lot of times we would have new people show up with us each and every time, and so we played a game. And the game was, each person is to give three facts about themselves. Two true and one false. And then the rest of the group needs to try to figure out which one is the false statement. Now, it doesn't take long to figure out that that we're going to try to come up with the most outrageous things that are actually true in their lives, and then try to give a boring one as the false one to kind of lead people astray. But we always do this. We think of the most outrageous things that have happened in our lives so that we can get others to choose that false one, that boring one that we shared. And there have been some good ones that have been shared. You see, truth is stranger than fiction, right? I mean, we've heard this before, and I'm pretty sure that you have plenty of stories. Uh, You're probably thinking of a couple of instances in your life right now that you could tell as a truth that people go, no, that couldn't possibly have happened. Couldn't possibly. I remember telling them at one point that I bowled a 300 game. They said, yeah, right. I did. One. <laughs> never again. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say, you should never say never. Uh, but yes, no, it has, I did not after that. Uh, so we hear about this little family. Poor, incredibly humble. Angels visit. Announce that the woman will become pregnant, even though she's not married and she's not been with a man. Truth is stranger than fiction. At the late stages of the pregnancy, she will need to travel many miles on the back of a donkey, full of pain. She doesn't give birth in a home, but in an animal stall, but everyone will come and visit, shepherds and townspeople and even kings bearing gifts. Truth is stranger than fiction. The young family will need to flee their hometown because there's an evil king waiting to kill the baby. They will become refugees. Only to return home many years later, the little boy will grow up and become the most influential teacher in the world, and he will reveal that he is the son of the Most High God. Truth can be stranger than fiction. You see, through this story, God puts into action the greatest part of his plan to save us all. He sends his only son to live here on earth, to live and to die for each and every one of us in order to bring us all back into a relationship with God. I think the the message translation expresses this beautifully when it says in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came to earth, not just across the ocean, a long, long way away, not just over the mountains or across the plains to that influential metropolis 
but to Highland Avenue, to Chicago Street, to Alfred Avenue. Jesus Christ moved into the neighborhood, our neighborhood. Jesus lived in the everyday places of the ancient Near East. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He welcomed strangers into his followers. Jesus was an everyday person, even if he wasn't an ordinary person. You see, Jesus was 100% human, but Jesus was also 100% divine. Now, I know that that doesn't make a lot of mathematical sense to uh, some of our mathematicians around here because you can't have 100% of something be 100% of something else and be one. Shouldn't it be 50 and 50? No. 100% human, 100% divine. This is what I believe. So what else do we believe about Jesus Christ? What else do we declare in this important creed, this statement of our faith? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not Joseph's biological son, but he was the son of God. He was born of a virgin, Mary, as told in Isaiah. Jesus was turned over to the authorities, namely Pontius Pilate, and was charged, convicted, and crucified. He fully died and was subsequently buried in a borrowed tomb. He then descended to the dead, but he didn't stay there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples and many others, taught a little more, and then ascended into heaven. It is there that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and finally he will return to us once more, and he will judge the living and the dead. This we believe, this we trust in, this we hope for. And here's where I want to take a little time to discuss not, not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done for you and for your neighbor, the person sitting in front of you and the person sitting behind you. The work of Christ is so important that we need to look at it through the lens of, of either the quadrilateral or the tetrahedron, whatever you remember most from last week, uh, or whatever you you relate to better from last week. Let's say that. And so if you don't remember all the points of those geometric uh, uh, shapes, let me remind you again that it's Scripture. Scripture is primary. And then tradition, experience, and reason. You see, Scripture tells us time and time again that Jesus came to this earth so that he could save us. Mark 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Christ's work, not ours. It is not because of our works, but because of our faith and belief in Jesus Christ. This is the whole reason that Martin Luther split from the church. Because it wasn't about works, it was about our faith that saved us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all know this as John 
See, the great tradition of the church has seen its share of views on this topic. The word used to describe what Jesus has done for us is atonement. Atonement. I'm not sure if how many times you have thought about that particular word. There's a lot of theological words that people throw around, but what exactly is the atonement? Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are redeemed, reconciled, and brought back into that relationship that God desires for all of us. We are once again at one with God. This is where the term atonement is seen as the at one with God. And it's that at one at onement that Jesus offers to us. Like the church today, the church in the early centuries uh, throughout the Reformation and beyond, they did not agree on how this atonement is played out or what it actually means. And so let me give you a little bit of a background uh, to see maybe where you find yourself in following these ideas of atonement. In the 12th century, Anselm proposed an atonement whereby Jesus dies in our place. He takes our place on the cross, where we should be. This is called the substitutionary atonement. You probably have heard about this because we hear about this story of the substitutionary method with Barabbas. Remember, as Jesus was going up to be crucified, Pilate said, who would you rather have? Would you rather have Jesus or would you rather have Barabbas? And everybody yelled out, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Jesus took Barabbas's place on the cross. Substitutionary. And from there forward, we can see how Jesus' death on the cross was to be ours. But he took our place. He took our place on the, tri- on the cross. He made his life a ransom for many as he took our place so that through his grace, we could have everlasting life. Maybe that's where you're at as you think about atonement and what Jesus did on the cross for us. But think about this. Within a short amount of time, Peter Abelard, another, per, another one of those early Christian writers, introduced a different view of the atonement. He felt that it was contrary to how he viewed God in that God required something as horrible as his own son dying on a cross in order to reconcile our relationship with him. He felt that way so much that he viewed the atonement as moral influence. Christ's life was an example of how we are to live and how we are to love. His life was meant to inspire us to to love God and to love our neighbor. This was also used to exemplify the martyrs from the early church and the suffering that Christians have faced over the centuries. The danger is seeing Christ and his example and therefore we need to live up to that example. And sometimes we find that that is near impossible. Although Jesus does say, we are to be perfect as the Father is perfect. In his writings from Scripture, Paul showed a different view of Jesus and his work on the cross. Paul showed Christ as victor. 
There have been many images of Christ throughout history, some of the, the images and paintings that we have seen that portray him as like bursting out of the grave, muscles flexing, victory winning. I can almost hear the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger. As Jesus proclaims the victory over Satan in this cosmic battle in the spiritual realm. We can see this view through much of Paul's writings as we hear so much authority in verses like, it was, like Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, all, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. And you hear that authority, that power that Paul proclaims in that passage, triumphing over them in Jesus. Okay, so finally, in, in the four that I wanted to share with you, uh, which I've got to say that there actually are many other views of the atonement, uh, but these are four of the, of the most popular views of atonement. Uh, this one we find Athanasius, another early church writer, and his view of Christ as vicarious healer. In his work on the cross, Jesus offers us healing for our sin-filled and broken lives and world. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, declares that Christ has condemned sin to the flesh so that we can live our lives in the Spirit. We receive new life in the Spirit. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are healed through the work of Jesus on the cross. A point to make clear point to make clear about all of these, all these four and, and more, is that Wesley didn't focus on one or another of these atonement theories. You see, he used this little word, and. And. He didn't believe, nor do I, that any one theory on the atonement is correct. He saw, as I do, that through our lives, our experiences... They can be viewed through different scripture passages and therefore different views of the atonement. And so maybe you're in the middle of something, something right now, and it, and it helps to view Jesus on the cross as a substitution for yourself. Maybe that's beneficial in your life today. Maybe you need the ever-powerful Christ, the victor image, defeating an enemy of yours. But some of you today may need Christ the healer in your life. What do you need today? Which Jesus do you need? Maybe that question that is raised by Jesus to his, his disciples rings truer today than ever before. You might remember that question. He turns to them and he says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And I can imagine the disciples that, you know, maybe they would say that they needed Jesus as victor. They needed Jesus as a substitution. They needed Jesus as a moral influence, a great teacher, somebody that they could follow. Can I ask you, who do you need Jesus to be for you today as? Something that you don't have to answer out loud. Something that you reflect on. Who do you need Jesus to be for you today? Will you pray with me? Loving and almighty God, God, we hear words about your son, Jesus Christ. We hear these words that that express to us who Jesus is. And then we hear these words of atonement, knowing that your desire is for us to be back in a relationship with you. And how do we get there? God, so sometimes we wrestle with this idea of whether or not it is, it is a substitution, that Jesus was a substitution for our lives, that he was a wonderful moral teacher, that he was a healer, but that he holds the keys of hell and death and is victorious over death. God, we all come from different places right now. We are different places in our lives. Some of us need to be reminded that that Jesus took our place. Some of us need this healing. Some of us are struggling with how to live our lives and we don't know what decisions to make. Some of us are facing a battle that we need a victorious Christ to come and defeat all of our enemies. So God, as we think about this, we lift up that that part of Jesus that we need today, knowing that it will be provided. So God, hear our hearts. Hear them as we cry out to you in our moment of need. And hear them as we proclaim the wonderful majesty of Jesus Christ. All this we ask in in his name. Amen. We worship the majesty, the majestic name of Jesus Christ. And so go forth from this place knowing that whatever version of that atonement you are viewing today, you are not wrong. But use that little word and, that it's not just one or just another, that it, that it can be all of them. And you may need that at different points in your life. So go knowing that, and go also knowing that the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit goes with you, and it goes with you always. Amen.